You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 640 of the Locked On Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Rowland, coming to you live on a Monday evening into Tuesday morning when you're listening to this, and uh, joining me, as often, Jeff Siegel is here. Hey, Jeff. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm here. Technically, uh, we're moving out of preseason and into the regular season, even though the Hawks don't play until Thursday, so we're going to see pretty much every other team in the league except for the Hawks before they play, but uh, that won't be new news for uh, for most of the people who don't cover the Hawks, because... That's uh, that's pretty much how it goes across the league, anyway. So, you know, I think it'll be. Uh, we're I'm looking forward to the season, even though we're the the, the team is kicking off a couple of days late. Yeah, as we're recording this, we're now within 24 hours of the start of the regular season for at least you know, a couple teams, and then the Hawks don't play until Thursday. But, um, you know, I'm bringing you on to do sort of a customary, you know, post preseason, pre regular season conversation we have a few topics that we definitely want to hit on on the podcast but we talked about this before we started recording there was a lot of movement in the NBA today um, most of which did not involve the Hawks directly but it's sort of tangentially did in some ways the one thing that the Hawks were involved in is uh, the Hawks did not extend either DeAndre Bembry or Damian Jones that's not a surprise at all uh, Bembry I guess had, had a very small chance but still a chance to to get an extension it's just not necessarily a situation where you often see players where he is in the pecking order getting extended. So that was not a surprise. And then Damian Jones was basically a no chance, um, in my opinion, anyway. So those, those didn't happen. But um, essentially, almost everyone else in the class of 2016 uh, signed an extension. All, all the good guys, anyway, other than Brandon Ingram. So, you know, I'm not going to go deep into this with you right now, Jeff. But people were asking, because the Hawks famously have $70 million in cap space for next summer. And at least... And some circles of Hawks Twitter and things, people were starting to think about what that money might be able to get them on the restricted market. Um, RFA is very difficult to gauge because you probably have to overpay and then you're still relying on teams to not match. But honestly, all the guys who are at least theoretically interesting are now not available. So I, I say that as the backdrop to ask you, does this have an impact on what the Hawks might do next summer? Because I tend to think probably not that much of an impact because, again, I was skeptical that any of these guys were actually going to get to Atlanta post-offer sheet. Maybe they would have signed an offer sheet, but um, an offer sheet that wouldn't get matched is always you know, not super likely. So I'm not too worried about this, but a lot of people were asking, so now I'm asking you. Yeah, um, I think it affects them in the way, in the sense that like these are a bunch of the restricted guys that they probably would have thrown thrown money at if they had if those guys had been interested in, in signing an offer sheet with the Hawks. Now that it's sort of Ingram and the rest of the guys, and Ingram's not a particularly great fit with Atlanta anyway, I think it sort of shifts their their priorities a little bit. I think we got a little bit of a hint of that in uh, in Schlenk's public comments either last week or the week before, somewhere sometime in the last couple of weeks when he said like. We're going to be, you know, the, the, the Hawks are going to be patient again and that they're going to try to, you know, take on bad money and, and continue to build their asset pool and all of that. I think he sort of had an inkling that a lot of this stuff was going to happen and that he was not going to get into free agency with a bunch of restricted guys still available because 
they, they, you know, they, they signed a, a lot of these extensions. So I think he sort of saw it coming a little bit and he sort of gave, gave us an indication. And then when it all came down today, they, you know, that became sort of the, the, the truth. And now you look at the unrestricted market and outside of like a couple of guys, maybe three, four guys, two of two, at least two of which are very likely to stay in their current with their current teams. There's not a whole lot of free agents either restricted or unrestricted who make a ton of sense for the Hawks. And, you know, you, certainly you would need those guys to be interested in what the Hawks are building and you would need, you know, the, the Hawks to be interested in, in taking those guys on. And so, you know, I think it ends up with, it ends up being that the Hawks are going to have a ton of space and use a lot of it on trading for guys in the, in the same way that they've done in these last few years, where as teams need to carve out that last, you know, few million dollars to, uh, to get out of the tax or to get, you know, a little bit of cap space to sign somebody that they actually do really want, uh, that the Hawks don't want on the, on the market, then, you know, I think that's where the Hawks will spend a majority of that almost $80 million. But it's, you know, the fact that it's so much money might, we might see them even try some of the, you know, it's, it's, Bear with me here because I'm invoking the name of the New York Knicks, but it's a little bit maybe they could do something like what the Knicks have done in terms of, of signing guys to, you know, these big balloon payments just to use that cap space because they they have to use it on something and they're not going to just sign nobody and, and you know, le- let the team sort of run uh, run as, as if it was uh, the same team that they were going to run out this year. So, you know, they're, they've got options. They're nothing, nothing that's, you know, sexy or, or is going to, you know, dramatically increase their playoff odds for 2021 but you know they've got uh, they've got a few options and as soon as those those guys are exhausted it's going to be about trades and about just sort of using that cap space kind of in any way they can yeah it's a good reminder that uh cap space can be used for other ways other than signing for agents we talked about this a lot on this podcast but trades uh etc there are other ways to use cap space it's not only about clearing max space to sign max level free agents and uh, like you said, there aren't, there aren't there aren't a lot of options. There already weren't a lot of options, but uh, some of the more you know dreamy, trendy ones that you know, for instance, J- Jalen Brown being a local product was often discussed in one of these um, scenarios. He's now off the market. Demontis Sabonis, if you like him quite a bit, is now off the market, etc. So there are guys who would have been interesting. Uh, Buddy Heel would have been fun uh, <laughs> on offense anyway. Yes. Uh, so yeah, there's lots of theoreticals that were batted around for the last few months that are now off the table. And I wanted to at least ask you, so I'm with you. We'll, we'll spend plenty of time on that later on, but uh, yeah, that was sort of the, uh, I guess the headline of the day in the league. So I wanted to touch on it briefly. And if, by the way, if you're interested in love uh, and reading about what Jeff has to say about those extensions, I think there's probably some content coming. Is that true, Jeff? Yes, uh, there will be. I haven't actually written any of it yet as we record this, but That's as you're funny. listening to it, it's already up on early bird rights. So you could go to earlybirdrights.com and find that. And now I'm pigeonholing myself into absolutely writing this article that I probably was going to write, but I wasn't 100% sure because I hadn't started yet. <laughs> but now we're going to write it. So that's the rest of my night, uh, as long as uh, as well as one other thing that will come to, to Peachtree Hoops, I believe, on Wednesday will be about DeAndre Hunter, is which is also somebody we're, we're going to discuss over this next uh, this next little while. So In fact, lots we're going to do that right now, Jeff. If you want right to, uh, this second. Right now, as literally as you're listening to this, you can find, well, no, not as you're listening to this, but the day after you listen to this, you'll find the DeAndre Hunter thing on, a, uh, on Peace Troops. And that's a professional segue, folks, um, in the business. But let's go to Hunter now. So 
I asked you just to, you know, I like to give people a look behind the curtain every once in a while. I asked you for a few takeaways that you had from the preseason uh, offline. And I said, all right, let's talk about that stuff. So for first and foremost on this list, since you just set up the segue, let's talk about DeAndre Hunter, who I think was really impressive in the preseason, um, turned a lot of heads. I was not terribly shocked by that. I do think that I've been pretty high on him. At the same time, his offensive game certainly was uh, more impressive in the early going than I might have envisioned it being. I've I have said that he has a little bit of upside offensively, but if you had to, if you had to pick one thing about Hunter's game that was uh, a point of skepticism for me, would have probably been his upside offensively. So he flashed some stuff in the preseason. What did you see? It's obviously it's preseason. Every caveat has to exist here. But um, as someone who doesn't watch as much college basketball as I do, for instance, and didn't watch as much pre-draft stuff as I did, what'd you make of what you saw from Hunter? And uh, you know, I guess it was a four-game sample, not not too too much. But uh, what'd you see? Yeah, I think the the biggest thing obviously is everything comes with the it was preseason. Don't you know the the veterans that he's going up against aren't trying all that hard for the most part. You know, some of his better games were against teams that are not very good anyway. On top of the fact that they weren't trying hard, so like there are things that are, you know, that, that you don't want to take away too much from, from preseason, but his off the dribble game with the ball in his hands, I think was the biggest thing that I saw from him in preseason that I was not sure we'd see at all at the NBA level. And I think that was sort of the most interesting part of preseason for me, just from, from the entire team, not just Hunter, but the entire team, all of a sudden DeAndre Hunter, especially in those first two games, I believe that Evan Turner didn't play. He Hunter like basically was the backup point guard for a lot of the time in those two games. I mean, he ran a lot of pick and roll was, you know, was sort of the main focal point of the offense when, when Trey young was off the floor and Evan Turner was, was out injured. And that was not necessarily something that I expected. His success rate on those plays was pretty good as well. That's not the success rate. I don't really care about as much. It's really more the usage. The fact that in preseason, Lloyd Pierce was like, you're going to be our playmaker when Trey Young's off the floor without Evan Turner in, in, in the lineup. Like you're going to, the fact that they wanted to see what they could get from him and they gave him that opportunity says to me that that's sort of the path that they might want him to take, which is interesting because that was not a path that I even thought was going to be, you know, not remotely possible, but it wasn't really within his, his median outcome for me. You know, I thought he was going to be more of like a standstill shooter you know, who could do a little bit in the post against smaller guys, like really, you know, the, the Otto Porter comparisons were the, the, the guy that I was sort of interested in for, for Hunter in terms of his offensive comparison, because Porter is a, a really good standstill. Like he's one of the better standstill shooters in the league, but is not somebody that you really, you know, run off of screens at full speed and he turns his hips and fires away. Like he's not necessarily that kind of, of, of shooter, but he's definitely very good as a standstill guy. And then he's got a little bit of a post game, but it's not something spectacular, but it's enough to give him a little bit of offensive variety. And that's sort of what I envisioned for Hunter. Obviously, you know, you can't envision that he's going to be, you know, a 45% three point shooter, but that was the role that I had sort of envisioned for him. And obviously they, you know, and that's why perhaps I was a little bit more critical of what they paid, what they paid to trade up to number four to get him, even though he would come with a much higher defensive ceiling than a guy like Otto Porter that sort of limited offensive role was something that I was like, do you really need to pay all of this stuff to move up four spots to grab that guy? Like, is it that guy more accessible than, than, than trading up all of that stuff? 
and it turns out like obviously i don't want to say that i was absolutely wrong on on that trade and, and hunter and all of this stuff yet but through the first four you know four or five games of preseason it seems like he's got more to his game than than i had anticipated and he has this sort of He's got the, he's got more off the dribble game, and it's something that he even said during the summer when everybody says everything positive about themselves, and everybody's like, "Oh yeah, they held me back in my last team, whether it's college or the pros." It's like I'm really ready to show what I can do. And Hunter said the same things, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, I bet you are." And of course, he was he might have been right. Like he certainly is right right now, and we'll see how it how it progresses going into the regular season. But he was right, perhaps that uh, that Virginia kind of held him back in terms of you know, how much off the dribble stuff that he could do. And, you know, they had some other playmakers on that team and they wanted to play, you know, immensely slow anyway and use 28 out of the 30 seconds of every shot clock and, you know, really grind teams, you know, grind the game to a halt anyway. So that's why they, you know, maybe didn't give him as many opportunities with the ball in his hands. And so we didn't see a lot of that, you know, certainly the smarter ones among us, including you and, and some other, the draft people saw that this was something that he could do. But, you know, from what I saw, and I probably saw, like two or three full games and then, you know, some other sporadic film, you know, through the course of my, my draft prep, it wasn't necessarily something that I had envisioned for him. So I think that was the, that was my biggest takeaway from preseason just overall for the whole team is, you know, Hunter's got more off the dribble game, both as a shot creator for himself and for his teammates than, uh, than I had anticipated. Yeah, I mean, even as someone who I think was higher on Hunter than the consensus, like I was, that was the area that I was, you know, worry is not the right word. Like I, I, I wasn't worried. It was just more skepticism of his upside. At the same time, you know, he he flashed more than I thought, and you know, the numbers were good. The numbers don't really matter, but a fifty nine percent true shooting is good in the preseason. Obviously, uh, only still a seventeen and a half percent usage, which isn't massive, but probably a little bit higher than I would have expected. Still, as well, early on, he's still only taking eight shots a game. Like it's not like Hunter's going to suddenly be a primary offensive option in a star level role, but. He did show enough off the bounce, particularly in uh, limited circumstances in the half court. I do think, and I think I, I'm sure I pointed this out at some point along the way, that you could sort of see the limited nature of his ball handling at times in the in the open floor. Whenever whenever he had a couple of grab and goes, you could kind of see that he's not really comfortable with that like full court, you know, kind of push dribbling um, ball handling that you might see in a guy in a, in a more natural wing. But in that mid range. Area he t- he's sort of in, he's sort of of an advantage score they got they got him going downhill a few t- a few different times his passing popped more than I thought it was going to as well so again it's all it's all small sample the shot looks great that's something that I was not worried about but it does look really really good um, and yeah I mean d- defensively he showed what he's supposed to show so. Overall, I uh, you know you couldn't have really asked for much more from Hunter. He's not going to suddenly average twenty points a game this season. But with the news of the Zion injury, I actually would make a case that Hunter is now like a sleeper Rookie of the Year candidate. I'm not going to tell you that he's going to win, but there was a prominent outlet. I think it was uh, the Las Vegas Superbook out there at the Westgate in uh, in the desert that had Hunter at 40 to one today after the Zion news, and I was like, that's that's really that's way too high. Like he's not going to win, I don't think. But he's going to be someone who's going to start on a team and play 2,000 minutes probably, barring injury, and going to play pretty well. Like I don't, Again, I don't think he's going to have the numbers that John Morant might have or that R.J. Barrett might have in terms of just raw box score production. But uh, yeah, if you're just ho- hovering around Vegas and have 10 bucks to spend, it wouldn't be the worst idea, in my opinion. Yes, but I mean, now that Zion's out, like certainly I would yeah. never have entertained it even at 100 to 1 before Zion went out because that's ridiculous, but... I mean, if he's going to miss eight weeks and maybe this, you know, this meniscus thing 
sort of flares up at some point later down the line. Like hopefully that doesn't happen, but you know, it's possible. And certainly if you, you know, at 40 to one, it's worth, you know, whatever, 10 bucks, whatever you've got, uh, whatever you've got on you that you're willing to lose. I mean, I said it before. I, I flat out predicted earlier in the uh, preseason that he's going to make first, first team all rookie. Um, and if, since I believe that, and I do believe that, um, why wouldn't I put 40 to one on him to win rookie of the year? Again, he's not, he's not likely to win in any way, shape or form, but if he plays, um, sort of the Kevin Herter role of last year, and and that's not a perfect comp, but basically, and by the way, he's going to start from from day one, whereas Herter didn't start for a while. If he starts from day one and plays two thousand plus minutes of effective basketball, yeah, I mean, there, there's a there's a path there. It's it's more of the Malcolm Brogdon path to Rookie of the Year um, than a traditional one. But if that's what that's what Malcolm Brogdon took, it, it took Joel Embiid not playing a lot for him to win. And if that happens with Zion, then the door is open. So. Anyway, yeah, and and you could make the argument. I mean, certainly Atlanta. You would think of the Atlanta, New York, Memphis trio. Atlanta is probably going to be the best team, so it's not like he's going to be going up against a you know somewhat less productive rookie on a better team. If if those are sort of the next three guys up in line for for the throne, if Zion you know continues to be out or or struggles in his in his return, it's yeah. I mean, it's certainly uh, an interesting bet to to see if you can. Uh, you know, make some money off of Hunter and, and unfortunately Zion's injury. <laughs> yes. Long shots are fun. Um, all right, Jeff, let's take a quick break. We'll come back and touch on two or three more things. And uh, but yeah, hold on for a second uh, for a word from the old sponsors. All right, Jeff, we're back. Um, and let's transition to a fellow wing um, alongside DeAndre Hunter. And that is DeAndre Bembry. They have, of course, very similar names. By the way, different different uh, punctuation, though. Uh, and those, it's very, yeah, very the critical. apostrophes in a different spot. And yes. that's pretty much it. People have, people have not picked up on that in some circles and they are, uh, I know they have the same name, but they don't have the same name at the same time. So just, just something to keep in mind. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, Bembry, you know, in some ways the preseason was very Bembry. Uh, there was lots of, uh, you know, there was one famous time where he, I think he was one of 10 from the floor at one point in a game when he missed three or four laps on the, on the same possession. There's some hot and cold with Ben Bree, but I've always, I've always loved him. So I have to say that out loud. Um, but you, you know, what did you make of him? Because you and I talked about it on, on this podcast. We were a little bit worried that Ben Bree wasn't necessarily a lock for the rotation. Um, granted, that was pre-Allen Crabb injury, um, and Allen Crabb being out basically assured Bembry would be in the rotation for a while. But it seems like he is a little bit higher in the pecking order than I would have ima- imagined coming in, and to the, pa- to the to the point where I actually argued on yesterday's podcast that if Kevin Herter is on, on a pitch count or not playing in the opener, I would start Bembry uh, almost certainly at the two alongside Hunter. Um, so all that to say, what did you make of what you saw from Bembry in the preseason, and uh, is he any different slash better than what you remembered previously? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that he was different. I think I just underappreciated what he brought to the team last year and just was not, was so focused and we get focused on this stuff a lot. And it's, it's something that I know that I do and something that I was cognizant of when they traded for Evan Turner, that like you can focus so much on the one thing that somebody doesn't do well, that you sort of forget or ignore a whole bunch of the other stuff that they do do well. And with, with Turner, that's a little bit different because the one glaring weakness is so incredibly glaring that it really screws up a lot of other stuff. But with Bembry, the the, the lack of a three-point shot is there, but it's not quite as glaring as it, as it is with Evan Turner. And because they – when they traded for Turner and then they signed Jabari Parker and then the, you know, the fact that they, Kevin Herter should sort of be the entrenched starting shooting guard – 
it was hard to sort of envision a role for DeAndre Bembry on, on this team. We talked about on the podcast, you know, I wrote about it for, for Peachtree Hoops. It's just difficult to, to see, like, if those three guys play together, Turner, uh, Parker, and Bembry, the offensive stuff is just difficult to, to get a handle on. The, the, the shot, you know, the shot making from the outside just isn't quite there for that, that perimeter trio. But I think the, the, one of the things that the preseason sort of taught us or told us is that Bembry just does stuff like all the other stuff that he does that isn't shooting the ball is, is a positive for you. And so he can just, uh, and turn, you know, turning the ball over. He does that a ton too. Um, but I think that's, that's the part of it that I sort of had, I, I lost sight of in a way that I didn't with Turner and maybe I should have, and I did it with, I did do it with Bembry and I probably, I shouldn't have is where I just, sort of, I got so focused on how the spacing was going to work with those three guys that I just sort of ignored, like put DeAndre Vembry on the floor and he's just going to do stuff and he's just going to make stuff happen. And it's just, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. And, but he's going to do a lot of, he's going to have a big effect on the game just from being out there. Like he can be, he was, he finished up two for 14 in that game that, that you were referencing. And he still was like a positive impact and it was two for 14. You know, like he can just do stuff like that. Like he ended up with six offensive rebounds in that game and four steals and a block and only, you know, one turnover or something. So like he could do, he can do lots of different things. And that was something that the preseason reminded me of in a way that I had sort of, I guess I had just kind of forgotten about it during, the, during last season. Obviously he was a big part of their, their rotation last year was the only guy I think to play all 82 games was a, a big part of the team. And then all of a sudden, you know, we flip into the summer, they've got these new pieces and I'm just thinking like, oh yeah, well, Bembry can't shoot. So how are you going to play him with these other guys? It's like, just put him out there and he's going to get stuff done. Yeah. I, I'm pretty sure after that game that we referenced that I talked about how well he played, even though he shot like absolutely ridiculously badly from the field. Um, but that just kind of outlines what he can do for you. The shooting is always going to be a problem, I think, at this point. I am, you know, it's still possible that he turns a corner and becomes an average shooter, but until we see that, I'm going to assume he's not going to be able to do it just because that's what we've seen so far. But he's a guy who can be a rotation player without without that. I mean, he's not a ter- he's not a complete non-shooter. He's not under Robertson. He's someone who can stand out there and have a little bit of gravity. That's all you need. He's a good ball handler at times. He's a very good defender. And yeah, I mean, It'd be nice if he finished around the rim. That's kind of my. I've also. I'm almost transitioned now from three point shooting to just be good around the rim because if you're bad at both of those things, it gets rough offensively. Um, that has to be said, even as someone who likes memory a lot. If he finishes around the rim effectively, then we're okay. Um, if he doesn't, if he doesn't shoot it and and doesn't finish around the rim, that 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 gets challenging. But listen, if it's a decision between in a perimeter role playing Bembry or playing Turner, I I, I want to see Bembry. I mean, uh, so, I mean, Turner is just, it's, they're different players in some ways, but that was one of the issues that I had with Bembry. We talked about this too, is that when they, when they brought in Turner, that was kind of the role. I say kind of, cause it's only kind of the role, but kind of the role Bembry is supposed to be in um, as this potential, you know, secondary playmaker, potential, you know, emergency back point guard kind of player. And Turner was brought in at a big salary and all that stuff. I, I think based on the way they ran rotation in the preseason, and it's tough to make assumptions based on that, that I think is going to play a lot on this team. Um, I'm very confident in that until Crabb comes back. And, and by the way, and when, since Crabb has this injury, it's not a lock that he's ever in the rotation. So this might just be Crabb and Reddish as the backup wings. And that, you know, that it kind of makes some sense in some ways. So yeah, I've always liked DeAndre. I think, I think he played pretty well in the preseason. We'll see. 
But um, yeah, we just kind of. I, I would have been interested to see, I would have been interested to see how it would have gone if they had healthy Alan Crab. I, I still think Bembry probably would have played, um, but I'm not sure it would have been as clear and as linear as it's been because they, it's, kind of, it's it's tough to remember this, but they've been playing without Herder and Crab. Essentially, their two best shooters. I mean, I mean they have Vince too. Vince Carter is a different, almost a different category, but their two their two best shooting perimeter play, like flat out perimeter players, have not been playing in the preseason. So. It also makes the second unit offense make look even worse in some ways. They have been playing Vince to try to get some of that shooting, which helps. Um, but Vince is still a 3-4 that's really more of a 4 at this point in time, whereas Herter and Crab are perimeter guys. Um, I am very interested to see, though, how it's going to look on a re- in a regular season game. And almost more interested to see how it looks if Herter doesn't play. You know, Obviously, Herter is a, a big part of this team. But in the opener, if Herter is not available, like seeing how, the, seeing how Pierce is going to treat that is interesting to me. Um, which has to do with Bembry in some ways, also and also not. But I guess they're just going to go with more with more reddish in that role, and maybe maybe still play Vince at the three like they were doing the preseason. That's not perfect, but you just need shooting out there. That was the one thing that we worry about with Bembry. But uh, yeah, he just does stuff. I think that, I like the way you put that. He just is someone who checks a lot of boxes and takes some things off the table. That has to be said, but um, he does enough to be useful. Yeah, I think that's that. That was the biggest thing that I sort of had ignored i guess coming out of the last season and into the off season was just how much of this sort of little things that you need that uh that he 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 provides and not you know that many guys on this team can provide that sort of all-around impact on the game even if his even if the, the weaknesses that he has are relatively glaring He's also a good athlete, which is helpful on a team that doesn't have that much burst athletically. There are some guys who are good athletes on this team, but um, he stands out at times when he's flying around and when he's healthy, and he seems to be healthy and upbeat about his health. Obviously, last year he played all season long, but before that there were so many issues, people just kind of forgot that he's a pretty good athlete, and uh, that is uh, also very helpful on the wing. Um, we can transition away from that to a different topic altogether, but also one that is uh, probably more relevant, <laughs> honestly. Uh Trey Young played defense in the preseason. Um, I hesitate to assign too much credit to this because it's preseason, but pretty much everyone that watched Trey Young play in the preseason, both from people like us who watched every minute of the preseason to some national folks that were in town for one or two games to people I reached out to make sure I wasn't crazy. Everyone kind of agreed that Trey Young played defense at a acceptable level in the preseason. Now, is he... Was he great? No, he doesn't have any. And by the way, he never will be. But I know I made the note early in the preseason. I think it was the Orlando game where I said it was the best stretch he's ever had in his career. And people were like laughing at me. I said, no, I actually mean this. It's, it's still preseason. So that's the overarching caveat. But it really continued. Like he got he got over screens a little bit more. Like occasionally dies on them still. But the effort level was there. The physicality was much closer to what you'd want to see from him. And I guess the easiest way for me to ask you this to get into the door on this conversation is, do you think it's going to continue? Yeah. I mean, I don't see why, like, I don't see why he would, if he's trying to turn his defensive reputation around, trying, trying your butt off in the preseason is, is fine, but not like, not the way to like, yeah, it's it's really weird, honestly, to just like, if he was, (laughs) if he was faking the effort to just try to turn his reputation around and try to not be in the conversations for worst defensive defensive player in the league, doing it in preseason would have not been the play that make there. Right. That would not be the time to do it. I mean, maybe, maybe maybe the Knicks game on ESPN would have been the time, but uh, yeah, when you're playing a, 
preseason game against Orlando at home that absolutely no one is watching and you're busting it on defense, that's a good sign, I think. (laughs) That sounds like something where somebody got in his ear or he got in his own ear and just decided, like, this can't continue. If I'm going to be an all-NBA level player, I'm going to be a top-ten player in this league, I have to not be the worst defensive player in the league. Even if he's not going to ever be good, he's not even ever going to be above average at the point guard spot. But if he can be, you know, the 30th percentile among point guards rather than the 0th percentile, like that would be unbelievable. That's probably a ceiling, but that's like not super far away from what we just saw over a five-game sample. Obviously, again, just five games, just the preseason. But those are the sorts of things like the DeAndre Hunter usage thing. The fact that – and it's even more so than that really because like Pierce could have just been like, Go, go nuts, DeAndre, see what you can do, and then you know they'll figure it out later whether they want him to do that in the regular season. If you're going to – I mean, sort of like just what we just said, if you were trying to turn your defensive reputation around, doing it in the preseason against Orlando is not like where you would start with that. But he's still doing – like he, you know, you could probably take that game off, but he didn't. And like it's, you know, it's cautious optimism until we see it in the regular season and still we see it consistently night in and night out, you know, three, four times a week for, for, you know, however many games he's going to play this year, 75, 82, however many he gets to. But it's still more optimism than I had coming into the preseason by a mile. I had just sort of penciled him in as like, he's going to be bad on defense again. Maybe he'll get it by like year four or five. And we'll just sort of have to have this conversation about like, no matter how good he is offensively, he's taken a lot off the table defensively and he could still be a superstar level point guard in that respect. But it's going to be, less impactful if he is the, the you know the second or third worst defensive point guard in the league and now all of a sudden there's some optimism that that's turning around even in you know even in the the, the relatively near future yeah like I, I thought he was going to be better in year two but better in year two was not a ringing endorsement it was more about you know we knew we knew he got bigger that was very clear from just seeing him in person and also just you know his workout stuff that's been public and all that stuff I knew he got bigger um, you know, you have to assume some level of growth defensively based on just being coached and being and the chatter and just all that stuff. He had to have figured out some 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 stuff to improve from year one to year two. But if what we saw in preseason is real, that would be, that'd be very nice. Like it's not going to be he's not going to suddenly be you know Patrick Beverly defensively, but. If he's just below average, no one talks about that a lot. Like the the comp that I've always kind of made for his defense is someone like Kemba Walker. Like Kemba Walker is not good on defense, but if you watch Kemba Walker, Kemba Walker tries on defense, and as a result of that, you don't really hear a lot of national narrative about how bad Kemba Walker is on defense. I mean, maybe you do, Jeff, but I, I don't really hear that. I mean, if you if you get into a deep a deep dive conversation about Kemba Walker. It probably comes up at some point, but like no one's making highlight reels of how bad Kim Walker is on defense, and no one's focusing on that in national discussions. It's like kind of like the like like the seventh point you might make about Kim Walker is that he's a below average defender, but until then, that's kind of what you you know that's not that's not a primary thing that you discuss. And if if Trey Young gets to that point where everyone just kind of knows he's not very good, but it's not a talking point. That's just a massive win because that means he could just be an awesome offensive player, and no one cares. Because listen, if you're if you're his size at point guard, it's just not going to be incredible. But it doesn't it doesn't have to be. That's what made it so frustrating at times last year, is that it doesn't have to be this bad. And you know it's it's again it's a very 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 small sample size of preseason games. But 
Yeah, man, it, it, it's it's not a small thing to go from where he was last year to what we've what we've seen now on tape, and it's gonna. I'm sure there will be nights along the way where it's pretty rough, like back to backs in January and February when you're in the dog days. I can't imagine the effort level is going to be there every single night of the season defensively for any of these guys, much less Trey Young. But man, just get to just get to be get to be below average. That's that that'd be such a huge win. It's not breaking news here, but it really is just. It's a very simple thing, but it's also very important. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 something that we talked about a ton last year. I talked about a ton over the summer. If he can get to the 40th percentile among point guards, that would be that's probably his like absolute ceiling. But that's like, I mean, not, that's just, more than enough though. That that that'd be incredible. Like that, just sign me up that for would, that. Yeah, right that now. would be his literal like hundredth percentile ceiling. Would be about 40th percentile among point guards. If he can get to 20, 25 percent of of you know 20. 20th to 25th percentile that would be I'm t- also just I, I that would be that would be good enough to make him if the offense you know continues to grow on this you know ridiculous path that it's on that would be enough to make him an mvp candidate for real yeah if he's yeah i mean yeah. it's it's interesting to talk about this i think what you want from trey young is <laughs> Now that year one's in the past, we all got our takes off about his defense. Year two, year three. The next step for Trey Young is no one talks about his defense until the playoffs. And obviously the playoffs are probably a year or two away. Probably a year at least. Um, but th- that will be the time when it actually matters. Like, actually matters. Other than just like the discussion that's out there and impacting winning. Um, in the playoffs, it's a different ball game. Like, even guys who are solid-ish defenders in the regular season... I.e. Steph Curry get picked on in the playoffs, and he's going to get picked on in the playoffs. But that's that's oh, yeah. that, no matter that, what, right? That, and, and that's and that's really, that's really what, I, what I'm getting what I'm getting to is like that's not going to change. Like there are degrees of it, but if you just get to the point where in December we're not talking about Trey Young's defense, that that's just huge because the 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 final frontier is the playoff stuff, and that's going to be a separate also similar discussion about how much negative impact he's, that he might have defensively in the playoff series, but he'll, he will not be alone. Playoff basketball is just much, much different. And we've seen time and time again, um, you know, certain centers, certain point guards, especially just get, get eaten up in the playoffs defensively. And there's nothing you can really do about it. Fortunately for the Hawks, Trey Young is so good on offense that he still carries value because he's going to be incredible on offense. He already is. So yeah, that's a whole. That's a way down the line thing. But what we're talking about now is just being a, a semi competent regular season defender, and uh, that is now on the table. I'm not going to assume it until we see it for more than five games in the preseason. But that for even for year two, based on what we what we just saw for two weeks, it's now a plausible outcome for this this year. And I'm not sure that was something I was assuming before that. Yeah, I definitely wasn't. I was in the camp that if he got from zeroth percentile to like fifth percentile that's a nice increase but <laughs> don't he wasn't be the really gonna get it yeah don't just don't be the worst defensive player in the league like that's literally my whole that was my whole expectation for him coming in and it was a big you know that that would have been for me a big enough leap that i would have been like okay that's fine now we can sort of build on that and build on that and by the time he gets to year four year five he is where you know he's at that sort of 25th to 30th percentile among among point guard defenders if he can sort of make if he can get there a little bit faster, then he can, you know, perhaps exceed that or, you know, get there and, and provide, you know, more, you know, overall value on this on this rookie scale contract. Whatever he's, you know, going to do, I think that's that 
this sort of miniature leap with over these five games of preseason shows a little bit of of what he you know that he might be on a more advanced uh, timeline for his for his defensive improvement and it certainly shows the coaching staff something that they talked about at the end of the of, at the end of the season with regards to to John Collins and I remember asking Pierce about this when I was in Atlanta right near the end of the season when Collins improved on defense over the last six weeks of the season Pierce would use the phrase he told on himself he told on himself yeah. that he can do this he just wasn't doing it before but you can do it. So it sort of it showed the coaching staff like you can do this. And so now we're going to expect it out of you. And so Trey, I think a little bit, depending, you know, certainly depending on how things shake out over the first you know couple months of the regular season, he may have told on himself with this stretch of, of preseason basketball plus these you know first couple of months where he might sort of have shown us like he can do this. He can give the effort and still be, you know, very good offensively and and, you know, be be that sort of all around kind of point guard. Obviously the offense is always going to outweigh the defense, but he can, he can not be the worst defensive player in the league. And so that's going to be something interesting, whether the coaching staff really sort of holds him to that effort level throughout the season, you know, based on, you know, all the back-to-backs and the offensive load he's going to carry. And the fact that the team's not going to be very good and every, you know, a lot of people are going to check out, you know, in in the January, February, March area, because it's just, that's the way it happens with bad teams. It would, it, it's going to be interesting to see how accountable they hold him over these, you know, the first few months of the season. Yeah, I think it is probably a safe bet to assume that Lloyd Pierce will use the "told yourself, told on, told on himself" phrase with Trey Young's defense at some point this season. It might be a question that I ask. It might be a question that Kevin Chenard asks. Someone will ask about his defense, and uh, Tra- and Lloyd Pierce will probably use that phrase. So I'm glad you brought that up because I, I could just totally see him saying that about Trey's defense. Yeah, I mean, he said it about John. He yeah. said it about Collins at the uh, at the end of last season, and that was like a big part of you know their their supposed you know improvement with Collins' the game and their their expectations for him to improve going into this season. Uh, that and we he, saw you know, Collins showed that he can he do it. it. Like yeah. over six weeks of the regular season, he showed that he can be a competent NBA regular season defender at the four. And it's like, all right, like now that's the baseline. Like you've created that new baseline for yourself. It's a good, it's a, so it's a very good be, thing. I mean, it's it's a good thing to put sure. that on tape, but it's also dangerous if you're the player because now the coaches have seen yeah. it. And Lloyd Pierce is yeah. not shy about, I'm sure he'll bring that up. He probably already has. I mean, like we alluded to, we'll, we can sort of wrap this up at some point about Trey's defense, but you know, I'm very confident that the coaching staff headlined by Pierce, it's not like they're not aware of Trey Young's defense from last year. Um, I'm sure. I mean, you, you want to hope not. You you want you want to pick your spots along the way, and I do think that they gave him a lot more leeway with his defense in year one because he was carrying such a workload offensively. He was doing it every night. He was playing playing a bunch of minutes as a rookie and you know it's it's a really tough ask to ask that guy to create everything for you offensively essentially and then come back and play competent defense on the other on the other, other other end of the floor when he's never done, done that before in his entire career essentially now Pierce I'm sure and the coaching staff understand and can tell Trey all right Trey you you know what you have to do now to be able to give the effort on both ends of the floor you know the shape you have to be in to be able to do that. And obviously Trey's in phenomenal shape. He looks like he's cut up and he's in the best shape of his life. Uh, trademark that phrase, I know. But he looks like he's in great shape and feels like he's in great shape. So I'm sure that has been a point of discussion to where they know what they expect now. And the baseline for acceptance from the coaching staff, I'm sure, is higher now in year two for these 
especially for the guys who are returning, now that they've been coached by the same guys for for another year, every, there's, there are no secrets with the, with the returning guys. And that includes Trey, that includes Kevin Herter, that includes John Collins, Alex Lynn, all the way down. Anybody who has been there for two years now, there are no secrets. These The coaches know, and uh, it's on tape. <laughs> so, Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the biggest thing. Why this summer, this entire summer has, for me, with this Hawks team has been all like my biggest thing going into the season is about John Collins defense. And of course now it's a little bit about Trey's defense because I didn't think that he was going to do this this year, but with John in particular, his defense is the most, the single most important thing I'm watching for this Hawks team this year, because if he can sort of take a leap past what he was in the last six weeks of last season, or even just do that again, that would be, such a, uh, an important leap for the team as a whole in terms of looking toward the eventual playoff crucible that this team hopes to find themselves in that you can't have, even if Trey hits his defensive ceiling, he's still going to be a target. And if Collins is also a target, it's just going to be untenable. So he's, that's why I've been preaching all summer about John Collins defense, that he showed enough in those last six weeks to make me think he can do this but you just you have to be able to see it over the course of an entire regular season before you can really believe it. But it's that's why it's so important, and that's why it's something that I'm you know really watching for going into the year. Yep, it's gonna be very very uh, fun, especially early on in the season to uh, gauge what these what these guys look like. Um, yeah, I mean, I think something that we I don't think we've talked about you and I, but I'm sure you've talked about it, and I'm, we've we've talked about offline. I believe is that the fact that. Everything you, you, all teams try harder for the first two months of the season because there's this hope that every you know every year you you might be good. Everybody's at their healthiest in October versus the rest of the season, so everybody's sort of going at the at the beginning of the year. And you know the Hawks have a really really tough schedule for the first couple months of the year, and so it's going to be if it's if it goes badly, it's going to go really badly. But if it doesn't go badly, and you can sort of see these incremental improvements from certain guys like it's going to be this is the 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 most important months of the year are the first two i think for the for the hawks in terms of you're going to be playing against playoff caliber competition almost every night and this should be you know you know kevin herter aside this should be pretty much a fully healthy healthy team and we're going to see what john and trey can do against you know defensively in particular against these these playoff caliber offenses through the first two months of the year yeah I think that's going to be uh, very interesting. We'll keep a very close eye because, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, we'll spend some time on that. I'm sure. Um, all right, last thing before I let you get out of here, um, and that's you are about to write about. Um, I guess I guess if people read this, uh, if people listen to this, I should say it's about to come out um, by Tuesday morning. You you wrote about Alex Lynn. Um, Alex Lynn. I don't care about preseason at all. Like he was really bad in the preseason. I have to say that out loud. He was not good. Um, I don't care about that for someone who's a returning contributor from last year, who's a five-year veteran in the league. Like he's not going to just be terrible. Um, but there is one aspect that people are, I know, kind of famously annoyed with, and that is his lack of uh, finishing around the rim and his bad hands, which you address both of in a in a piece. So what what did you find when it, when examining uh, Alex Lenz? I, I think, at least in my experience with Hawks Twitter and stuff like that, his most famous weakness. Yeah, I mean it's it's. It's really not good, and it's so interesting to see how not good it is compared to the other parts of his game because – so he has no touch around the rim, like just zero. So he – like on these little hook shots, these little layups, anything that's not like a dunk is 
he's one of the he's literally one of the worst finishers in the league among like seven footers and i I laid it out in the article last year he was like 34th out of 34 in in uh, non-dunk finishing among seven footers and then the year before he was like 29th out of 30 the year before that he was 28th out of 32 like it's never been and this is this is like a five-year sample of him like being abjectly awful around the rim on non-dunk finishes and so i sort of I looked at, I got that stat first before I really looked into why. And it was really just, I wanted to see like what, what goes wrong for him around the rim that makes it like he is so incredibly consistently abjectly awful around the rim. Like, why is that happening? And both as a starter in Phoenix, both as, and, and, and then as a bench guy last year in Atlanta, all the time, just no matter what, he just can't finish. And so I, w- I wanted to look at it. I, you know, the hands are the the biggest thing. It's like he just doesn't like he just doesn't have a lot of touch around the rim on these little miniature hook shots, these layups, whatever. If he feels contact, it just doesn't work out for him. Whether he's rushing it, it it's that was a little bit harder to tell what his sort of why he doesn't have a lot of touch. And that's the the biggest thing there with the lack of touch is that he has touch from the other areas of the floor. He can shoot free throws at like average rate for a big guy he can make a corner three he can make an above the break three he was a pre- he was a good three-point shooter last year for big men you know among centers he was you know 60th percentile or whatever in three-point percentage and he took a lot of them and he was you know he was especially for a bench guy he definitely took a lot of them like so he can he has this outside touch but he doesn't have the inside touch which is very weird and odd and it's it's not something that you see in terms of just the 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 disparate, you know, the uh, the separation between his like three point percentage and his free throw percentage and his non dunk finishing around the rim that the the difference between those is so massive that you just don't see a lot of guys out there with that sort of you know disparity. You see a lot of guys who can shoot have really good touch inside. Like Brook Lopez is you know one of the best you know three point bombers among centers. He might be the best guy right now you know among centers who are not like Carl Anthony Towns or like superstars, but like among like role-playing centers, he's one of the, he's, you know, might be the best shooter in, in the league at, at the big man spots. But you go back to his, his time in like New Jersey back when, you know, he was with the Nets and he had, you could throw the ball to him in the post and he could hit a little turnaround jump shot. He could hit a lot of hook shots, both hands. He could do a lot of different things with the ball in his hands as a scorer. He had that touch inside. And then they just sort of, as the three point revolution has sort of taken hold of the NBA, they've pushed him toward, you know, now he's like way out past the three point line. He's still very effective. Len has never had any of that. And all of a sudden last year, he was a good three point shooter. And it's like that came out of nowhere. And it's, but it's not like because he got so many shots up. It's not that I don't I don't think that the shooting is some sort of aberration. And he's going to go all the way back to where he was. He just can hit those shots and he can't finish around the rim. And it's weird, but it just sort of the way it is. Um, <laughs> yes. I mean, it is so mad. It, that, it, it is maddening, honestly. Um, and I'll let you finish. But it, it is maddening in part because of what you're saying. Like, it's not you have to have. I guess it is different touch but you have to have some touch to be able to shoot the way yeah, you've got to have to some sort of hand eye coordination, some sort of skill with the ball in your well, hands, but the hands, I mean, it, honestly, I, I think that it might be, you know, this is very, I'm very much guessing here, but I think that his hands being so bad are almost more important than his touch. If that makes sense. Like the fact that it's not always that he can't catch the ball, but there's just been some very high profile <laughs> times when he's not caught the ball. Um, yeah. And, 
that's maybe maybe that's more instructive when talking about just finishing around the rim is that is that like more like soft hands thing than actually you know winding up and shooting a three maybe i'm not i'm not an expert on this by any means but it it feels like it is it could be more relatable to catch the ball at a high at a high rate of speed um and finish it having the same sort of skill set with your hands than actually you know taking a catch and shoot jump shot does that make sense? I'm not sure I'm even saying it yeah. right, but the hands, his hands being a well-documented weakness, I think could apply more to his short area of finishing than it actually does to his jump shot in a traditional sense. It's weird. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense because especially when he's on the roll and he has to catch and then turn and see what the defense yeah. is giving him, and he's, you know, and one of the other things I found is like he has very little explosion out of his legs like he just like for a seven foot one he's just, foot he's, just, guy, he's just huge that, that's if alex lynn was not seven one a legitimate seven one then he would you know he, it'd, be, it'd be more clear that he's a very he's a pretty limited athlete but he's not a great athlete he just happens to be yeah. massive which is helpful he's so massive which is great and that's super helpful but like he just can't even at seven foot two he can't explode up to the rim without like really loading up and exploding and then in these small areas where there's lots of defenders around if you catch the ball at your face and you've got to bring it down to your hips in order to swing your arms up to jump and dunk it when you bring the ball down guards are going to strip that and that's going to happen to you a lot and all of those the biggest thing in terms of his numbers is that all of those count as blocked shots now they used to count as steals and now when it's clear that the player was loading up to jump up for a dunk or a layup they count those as block shots, which count as missed shots for Alex Len. And that's why a lot of his that's one of the reasons why his numbers are worse than they sort of maybe would have been 10 or 20 years ago before they counted those as block shots. That's you know, that so that factors into it. Another big thing that factors into why his numbers were so bad is that he goes for a lot of like no hope tips around the rim. So like if the ball comes off and he just like touches it and it like caroms off the top of the backboard, that counts as a missed shot which count as like a, a non-dunk finish miss around the rim. So there are some reasons why his numbers are so bad around the rim that aren't necessarily about his lack of touch and his lack of ability to hit a layup. Sometimes he just doesn't get a chance to even try to lay the ball up. Of course, that's still a problem that he has to bring the ball down to his hips in order to explode upwards to, to get to the rim. That those that That's still a negative play when he gets stripped like that. But I'm, I'm not necessarily... It's not about. It's not all about his touch at the rim for his his non dunk finishing. It's just all of these things sort of combined end up with him at the at the very bottom of the league in this you know particular uh, statistic. Yeah. So go go read about that and what Jeff had to say as well. It's something to, something to monitor. But I can tell you, whenever Alex Len um, does not finish a Trey Young assist in particular, my mentions fill up yeah. with how bad Alex Len is. Um, Alex Len is not a terrible be... basketball player, um, but. That is going to happen some more. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's just, going to happen a lot. And just I think buckle up for that. It's going to be interesting to monitor because Trey can be relatively emotive on the court, both positive and negative. When he gets into it with opponents, but you know, as from the negative side and from the positive side, when he jumps for joy every time he gets an assist to 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 for a lob, like he's he can be emotive on the court, and it's going to be interesting to see how he transitions from having like. Dwayne Dedman and John Collins as his two sort of primary role man targets to having it be Alex Len and John Collins, where, you know, Collins is still, of course, going to be great. But, you know, when Alex Len misses 
his third catch of the night and his 10th catch of the week. <laughs> yeah. You know, I wouldn't, it could, wouldn't could shock me if Trey kind of looks at him like, what the hell's going on out here? Yeah, that, that would not be a shock. Um, worth just pointing out, um, in case there's any doubt, Alex Lynn is by far the best center on this team. He's going to play. Oh yeah. By he's he's going to be treated as such. Um, but yeah, he's not without weaknesses and center is probably a problem. Um, but we'll talk about that at some later, at some later time and date. Um, before I let you get out of here, Jeff, I have to ask you, um, I'm going to get your final prediction since this is the last time that we'll talk on the podcast before the regular season opener. But before I get to your final win-loss prediction, I uh, I put out a Twitter poll, and I did not prep you for this, so uh, apologies. Sort of a, an informal Twitter poll a couple days ago about the first 22 games of the season for the Hawks um, and how brutal the schedule is. Uh, when asked to predict the record after 22 games, I settled on six and 16. Um, and people were higher and lower than I am. So I was somewhere in the, somewhere in the middle. If you want to be pessimist, like for instance, I'm not sure the Hawks will be favored more than like twice during this run. If that, cause it's, it's kind of brutal. The schedule. Um, there are a couple of games who, that are somewhat favorable on paper. Like they, they play Chicago at home. For instance, they play Phoenix on the road. Um, they play Minnesota at home. Those are obviously winnable games, and certainly the Hawks can and probably will win some of these games that they're not favored in. But before we get to the A2 the game prediction, how bad is it going to get in the first 22 games? Because honestly, if you are someone who's picking the Hawks to compete for a playoff spot, and those people are definitely out there, um, particularly in the fan base, not, 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 not necessarily in the uh, analyst ranks as such, but if you are someone who thinks the Hawks can win 38-plus games, they can't do what I think they might do early on. And holding water, I mean, if you want, if you want to be more positive, if the Hawks can finish the first 22 games at like 10 and 12, that is like the biggest win in the history of wins because the schedule gets a lot easier after that. But I am skeptical of that. So before I get your 82-game prediction, how bad does it get early on? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be – it's not going to be great. Like it's – it's if they – like you said, if, I mean, if they go 10 and 12 – then the we playoffs can have are in a play. conversation about yeah. the playoffs are in play. Like, that that's, that, 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 that in might play. sound too too aggressive, but I promise you, it's not. If, if the Hawks can do it's that, really not. If the Hawks can do that early on against the, against this schedule and with probably a limited Kevin Herter for at least part of it, and if they can go out and do that, and again, I'm not predicting that by any means, but if they actually could post a quarter of the season as a almost 500 team against this schedule, then you're talking about 40 wins is in play. So yeah. You know, and, and that, so that would be, that's sort of the, you know, on the high side, that's sort of where their, where their ceiling might be at for those first 10, 22 games. It might be even like above their ceiling, frankly, but yeah. it's possible at least. And, you know, it's, and it's going to be bad and it's, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle it. Cause I don't have, you know, super high expectations for this team overall, you know, even if they started 10 and 12, we could talk about the playoffs, but I don't, I still wouldn't favor them to make it just, you know, overall, I, you know, I think how they handle a six and 16 start or a four and 18 start and what they look like against those teams and how competitive those games are, that would, that's going to be more interesting to me than whether they, you know, necessarily win or lose in the final moments of those games. If they're just getting blown out and their net rating is in line with a four and 18 team, then that's more of an issue. That means they're, you know, a little, maybe a little bit further away than I thought they were. And I'm not somebody who thinks they're anywhere close to to playoff level anyway. So maybe, you know, I think if they could go four and 18 and I could come out of it thinking they're on a, on a faster track than I expected. Yeah. I I was going to say that that is a possibility. It is very possible 
that they go like five and 17, six and 16. And I almost feel better about them. That, that is actually, yeah. that is actually a plausible scenario, especially if they, if they, if they compete against some of the big boys, like during this run, and the first 22 games, they play at Houston. They play Milwaukee at home. They play at the Clippers in a game that you'll be at. They play the Lakers in a game that you'll be at. They play at Denver. They play at Portland. They play even, you know, Philly at home. They, they play some of the best teams in the league. If they're competitive in those games, they're just losing by like seven points. I'll probably feel better about them than I actually than I do now. <laughs> it's just yeah. kind of, it's funny. I mean, they, they, I guess if you, if you want to be on the bright side, they do have, uh, I'm looking at it now, the first, one, two, three, the first eight games are actually fairly manageable. They're, they're they're playing some solid teams. They're playing seven of the first eight games against playoff level teams. Oh, sorry, no, six of the first six of the first eight are playoff teams from last year, and then Sacramento, who was a playoff team in the East last year, if they were in the East, um, and then and then Chicago, who should be better this year. If the first eight games are actually very manageable, if they went four and four in those first eight, I would not like lose my mind. Because they play six of those eight, six of those eight at home. They play Orlando at home. They play Miami at home. They play Chicago at home. Sacramento at home. Those are games that they absolutely can win, and they're almost they're almost coin flips to win some of those games. But then it gets crazy because then they have to go to the West Coast, Portland, Denver, LA, LA on the same road trip. Like good luck. Come back home from yeah. Milwaukee. Good luck. So it's also possible that they come out of the gate and they're three and five, four and four. It's like, okay, this is going well. And then they're suddenly, they lose eight out of nine. And I can tell yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of weirdness here and it's just worth keeping in line with expectations because we've known this for two months now. I tweeted out a reminder of it, but Graham Chapel, front of the program um, did sort of a, a schedule dive back in August we knew then that the schedule lined up for this team to struggle early and be, and be good late in terms of wins and losses. And that's hard to remember in the moment if you're a fan, but I'm trying to tell people that that's probably what's going to happen. They're probably going to start slow and they're probably going to be like a 500 team in the second half of the season. Part of that schedule and also part of that is that this is a young team. A young team is going to get better during the season and they're playing an easier schedule during the season, <laughs> as the season goes along. So like it's it's just very much lined up to be exactly that a struggle early and then it gets better and they start peaking in, you know, March. I don't know. Yeah. And that's, I think it's interesting and it's almost, it's probably going to be a good thing for the team long-term that they get all of these heavy hitters at the beginning of the year, because all these teams are trying. Every team is, you know, nobody's guaranteed a playoff berth in October and all these teams are going to put their best guys out there against the Hawks' best guys, assuming Kevin Herter is you know back and healthy at some point it, during this run. It's going to be a, a nice early season test for them. That if you if you're a bad team like Atlanta is probably going to be, and is you you play a tough end of the season schedule, it's not as tough because teams have already wrapped up their playoff berth guys are, you know, getting ready for the playoffs, but in October, November, early December, that's not happening as much. You know, the teams who, you know, certainly the teams that have a lot of new pieces are still piecing that together, but you're playing against, you know, for the most part, high level competition, pretty, you know, pretty much every night. And there's not a whole lot of, of games taken off in, you know, October, November, December, like there are in, you know, March and April. So, you know, from that perspective, I think long-term, going six and 16 through this stretch or, you know, whatever, seven and, and 15 through this 22 game stretch is, it would probably kill their playoff chances this season, but also would be something that they could look back on at the end of the season and be like, we learned a ton during that stretch. Yeah. 
That's very, very plausible. And yeah, I'm not trying to rain on, rain on anybody's parade. It's just a, a context thing here. And I'm really trying to prepare people for the reality that it might not be great in the win column early on. But listen, there's only one game in the first eight that they're going to be like a big underdog in. And, that is, and that's Philly. And even then, they're playing at home. So they could be frisky in that game. Miami doesn't scare me to death. Like, Miami's better than the no. Hawks. But um, Orlando, same thing. Detroit, same thing. San Antonio is a weird basketball team. So, like, they could certainly come out and win four or five of these first eight games. And that will appease – I'm sorry, that will that will alleviate some of the worry. Um, it's just the stretch after that that's uh, dicey. All right, Jeff, uh, final prediction. This doesn't really matter all that much, but uh, I've used, I've done mine a few times. So what's your final 82, 82 game or so that so when, you, when, you're, when you're wrong, Jeff, I can play this for you later on in the season. That's fine. You can you could certainly uh, we'll be, put we'll it we'll back wrong, at me. When, well, I'll probably be wrong. There's technically a, a 1 in 82 chance that somebody's going to be I, right because uh, they're going to win ago. between – I nailed it. Okay, well, I there really you go. Did. So you've the, got a better uh, chance at uh, – the, the horrible team. I do. The worst team I've ever covered in my life, the the, the, Den- the Dennis Schroeder uh, experience, the Dennis Schroeder Torian Prince experience two years ago um, that yeah, got butt out the door. Was... I nailed that win total, um, which is not a – it's just more of a blind squirrel finding a nut, honestly. But uh, all that to say, where, where are you at? Yeah. I, think I, think, I think you're lower than me, but not by that much. No, I mean, I'm – I hesitate to go lower than 29 that they won last year, but I don't – like unless there's you know the internal improvement is where this team gets better from trey from john from kevin harder those are the guys who are going to propel this team to more than 29 or 30 wins and because the rest of the team got worse you know alex len is worse than Dwayne deadman whoever the backup center is whether it's bruno or, or damian jones is worse than alex len was last year the you know the backup point guard situation you know, going from Jeremy Lin to Evan Turner is worse. The backup wing rotation going from Kent Bazemore to, you know, whether it's Cam Reddish or DeAndre Bembry, like that's a downgrade. Like there's so many downgrades that are not necessarily from the top guys, of course, that it just, they're, they can't, I mean, unless they're really just going to play Trey and John, like 3000 minutes, like they're just, they're going to get killed. I think in the non Trey minutes. And, you know, that's where I come down from, when Trey's on the floor, this could be a, a 36, 38, 40 win team, you know, based on the offensive rating and defensive rating when he's on the floor. But when they when they crater because he sits his, you know, 15 minutes a game that he sits and they get outscored by 10 points per 100, it's like, yeah, those those minutes count, you know, and those that's where you lose games sometimes. And that's where you lose a lot of games in the regular season when you can't push Trey to 38 minutes a night because it's not a playoff series and you need to, you, you, there's just no reason to play him that many minutes for this kind of team. So that's where I come down to the, you know, 29, 30, 31 kind of range, you know, I put to put a, an actual number on it. I'll go with 30, a one game improvement over last year, sort of right in the middle of where I think they, they could be. They, you know, it's certainly the wheels. I think that's on the lower end of their possible outcomes you know, I just think that that's where they're going to end up. But it is, if they won 25 games, that would shock me a lot more than if they won 38 or 40. Like they, there's a path to them winning 20, you know, 30 to 38 to 40 wins with Trey just being taken a massive leap with John taking a massive leap and that the, and the, the rest of the guys sort of holding up. That's a lot more plausible to me than 25 wins, assuming everybody's healthy. Of course, if, if Trey misses, 15 games and they win 25 games that makes sense but like assuming he can play 80 81 82 games like he did last season 
it wouldn't it would shock me more if they won 25 than if they won 38 yeah i'm with you on that i, I do think that there are more scenarios for them to win in the high 30s than there are to win in the mid to low 20s the only way they get the only way they're that bad i think is a Trey young injury and i do think that if, if Trey misses 3 weeks even like that really really kills them um because they just you know i'm not saying they can't i'm not i'm not saying they couldn't win ever without him um but uh they would be a sizable underdog against anybody in the league sans maybe the hornets without Trey young so I guess, but maybe even not like, and that's what I said. That, that's why that's why I'm saying maybe. I mean, at, le- at least John yeah. Collins would be on the team, and John Collins is the best player on the floor in that game. But um, yeah, yeah. All, all that all that to say, the only way I see them winning in the mid 20s or lower is if Trey gets hurt for some length of time. Um, whereas I could yeah. I could see some scenarios where they win in the high 30s. Um, I wouldn't project that, but that's certainly in play. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, so yeah, sports. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We'll talk plenty throughout the season, Jeff. Uh, you are, again, the most frequent guest of this podcast, and I appreciate you for doing that. Please plug yourself. You have a lot of stuff going on, so share with people where they can find you, uh, Hawks and non-Hawks. Yeah, uh, you can find all my Hawks stuff at Peachtree Hoops. You can read the Alex Len piece that we talked about, you know, sort of at length, more length than we thought we were going to talk about it, uh, on Peachtree Hoops right now as you listen to this. It should be up uh, tomorrow if you're listening to this on the day that this comes out, but Wednesday the, uh, the, the the day after the regular season starts, but the day before the regular season starts for the, the Atlanta Hawks, you can read about DeAndre Hunter, which has not been written yet. So maybe I shouldn't promise that, but it's going to be there. I, I promise. Um, and then you can also read me on uh, extensions, the extensions that we saw agreed to on Monday, both the rookie scale guys and the guys like Joe Ingles, who extended uh, with the Utah Jazz. You can read all about that stuff over at earlybirdrights.com, earlybirdrights is your home for all the the salary cap stuff that you can get your hands on. It's uh, it's an invaluable resource to a lot of people. If I'm if I'm going to plug myself real quick on that, uh, it's been you know very helpful. Within the first two weeks of the regular season, there's going to be something else coming to early bird rights that I don't want to totally promise yet because it's not in my hands as to whether it gets done or not. But we're very you know the, there's a, a three man team of us that are working on it, and uh, we're hopeful that. We can launch that within the first two weeks of the season. We don't, it will not be ready on day one, uh, but it will be ready within hopefully the first two weeks of the year. Uh, so hope, you know, stay, stay tuned for that. That'll be uh, something relatively big that I hope uh, a lot of people are going to find useful throughout the regular season. And then of course, in the off season, you've got all of the salary cap stuff as well. So trying to make early bird rights a little bit more well-rounded, make it the, the, the place to go for lots of different basketball stuff and not just the salary cap stuff. So yeah, that's uh, that's what's going on over these next few weeks, and uh, the Hawks will be back on Thursday, and it's been a long time, but uh, it'll be very interesting this season, both uh, for the Stars, for the non-Stars, for, for pretty much everybody in this organization. Yep, we're almost there. We're counting down. Uh, again, we're recording this Monday night into Tuesday, so we're less than 72 hours for tip-off, and we're uh, we're getting there. Jeff will be back, I'm sure, at some point in the very near future. Thank you for joining me, as always, my friend. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast. It'd be huge if you did that. Please tell a friend about the show as well. Check out earlybirdrights.com where I am always looking for all my information as well. And uh, we'll be back again later in the week. So stay tuned for all of that.